Amen. Thank you, Corral. Tell you what, what a wonderful reminder we've had just in singing this morning of the glorious gospel of Christ and our opportunity at Christmas time, especially, to promote the gospel. Back in our track racks, you will find some postcards that say Merry Christmas from our church, and on the back is an outline of the gospel. Let me encourage you to take those wherever you go and just say, Hey, I'd like to give this for you and wish them a Merry Christmas. And just give it to them and pray uh, silently for them that the message of Christ and Christmas would be illumined in their understanding where they would come to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great opportunity this season to share the glorious gospel. The next Sunday morning, Lord willing, uh, I'll be preaching a Christmas-themed message. But today we'll continue in Acts chapter 16. Begin as a new chapter. We just finished uh, chapter 15 last week. We'll look at the first five verses of Acts chapter 16 this morning. Paul goes back to the churches that they visited on their first, well, actually they weren't even, they didn't visit them on the first missionary journey. They established them on the first missionary journey. Now they go back to the established churches uh, to visit them about five years after the end of their first missionary journey. And instead of traveling to Cyprus and around and up and come then basically west to east, they come east and go west. So they end up at the last city that they had visited on their first missionary journey, which would have been Derby, And then they go to Lystra. Let's pick it up uh, in chapter 16 and verse 1. We'll read the first five verses as we look at this passage this morning. Then came he to Derby and Lystra, And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him, Paul would have to go forth with him, and he took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. The word came there in verse 1 indicates that they, they went to the church at Derby. They stayed there for a while. They ministered invested in that church. Then they moved on to Lystra and they came to that church and they stayed for a while ministering there. And so their, their intention is, as you remember at the end of chapter 15, Paul's vision when he approaches Barnabas about going back to those churches is to see how they're doing and establish and strengthen them. Let's engage with them to strengthen those churches and to do what we can to equip them for further ministry and even assist them in further gospel proclamation and helping them reach their areas with the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so they, so Paul takes Silas. We, we looked last week at some of the issues between Paul and Silas and and how we believe that through the Spirit of God and, and they were reconciled to one another. And then we see how God sovereignly multiplied gospel influence by Paul and Silas going back to those churches. And then Barnabas taking with him John Mark and going back to the island of Cyprus and visiting those churches. And even, I believe, evangelizing cities where they had proclaimed the gospel through the way but had not gone back to visit. And so now Barnabas is going to encourage and help strengthen those churches along with John Mark, in whose life he was investing towards future ministry. But I want us to see, as we preface this second gospel uh, mission, and the second missionary journey, in these first five verses, uh, preface a foundation that show us three essential ingredients or elements uh, of building a God-glorifying ministry. The first thing I want you to see is godly young men are an essential element to building a God-glorifying ministry. Look in verses 1 and 2. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. And so Luke, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is kind of focusing in now on this young man, Timothy, and he is describing some things that I believe we're going to have some, some rich significance and strong encouragement from this morning just from Timothy's life. 
The Bible says that he was the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish, Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek. Now by Greek, it doesn't mean he was a Hellenistic Jew. It means that he was Greek in origin. It means he was pagan in philosophy. He was an unbeliever. Luke is clearly stating here. This was highly unusual within the land of Israel, but in the, in the diaspora, in the Jews that had scattered to different regions and different cities, this was not as unusual. Um, and so these, quote, mixed marriages, mixed meaning a Jew with a Gentile, which they weren't supposed to do, that often happened. And, and, and Timothy was the product of one of those marriages. But look in verse 2. Which, speaking of Timothy, was well reported by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. So Timothy was a disciple. He was an obedient learner and a follower of Jesus Christ. This speaks to me of serious dedication. We need godly young men in this church who are serious about their dedication to serving God and living for him. Years ago, I had the privilege of preaching uh, for Bob Jones Farm Fest. And uh, the morning I was supposed to go out, one of the vice presidents took me out to breakfast uh, before we went over for the day of Farm Fest. And I said, what, what are some of the great challenges that you are facing? And what's one of the quandaries that I can pray about uh, for God to give uh, BJ wisdom in how to minister and deal with? And he says, one of the most frustrating things we deal with, and this is in 2014, he said, one of the most frustrating things we deal with is godly young ladies who are ready to go out and serve the Lord in ministry, but they're waiting for these young men in these Christian colleges to grow up. We know what we need. We need some godly spiritual young men who are mature in the faith, have a serious dedication about serving God. They are leaders who will stand for the truth without apology, graciously, but without apology, who are digging into the Word of God, who are meditating in the Word of God, that are more interested in the Word of God than video games more interested in accomplishing something for the kingdom of God than, than checking off their bucket list of adventures. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with video games in their context or with having adventures and doing things with friends. But what are you living for? Are those things tools and avenues through which you can do ministry or are they merely an excuse that you say you're doing ministry but it's just an excuse to do those things? Or are you so distracted by the things of this life and say, well, I'm young and I have all the life before me and this and that. Hey, folks, Men, get centered on the Word of God. Get serious about living for God. Be dedicated, sold out. If God wants you to be a contractor, be the godliest contractor you can be. If He wants you to be an attorney, be the godliest attorney that you can be. And look at whatever sphere of occupation God gives you as an area of ministry to proclaim the gospel and to be a gospel witness and to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. And that your whole life is not about making a comfortable living. So you can have a little bigger house than the guy next door and a little nicer car than other people drive around town and that sort of a thing and just kind of come to church and live in a comfortable Christianity. But instead, your life is invested for the kingdom. And even as we were looking at in, in our scripture reference this morning for, to challenge us in our worship and giving, that like these women that served the Lord following Christ and, and serving the apostles and serving the Lord Jesus Christ and also even financially supporting them out of their substance, that that would be a primary goal for you. And that even you would have a desire and say, Lord, I would love for it if you would call me into full-time ministry. And if not, God, maybe you will allow me to be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or, or whatever. But Lord, I want, to serve my, I want to serve you with my life. Timothy was a disciple. He was an obedient learner and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Now let me say this to you parents and grandparents. Timothy's mom and grandma were Jews who had believed on Jesus. Their faithful teaching of the scriptures prepared Timothy towards trusting Jesus as his Savior. You say, well, Pastor Todd, when did Timothy's mom and grandma believe on Christ? How long have they been believers? The Bible does not say. But they at least were faithful as Jews even before they were believers to go to the Old Testament scriptures and to study them and to teach Timothy. And I believe, like many, if you study out in the Gospels, especially looking in Luke 2 and other places at the birth of Christ, man, you know, they were looking for, people were looking for Messiah. When Jesus begins his public ministry, some of the disciples of John the Baptist, man, they, they are looking for Messiah and they go and they start spreading the word. We found Messiah. And so there were those in Israel in that day that were looking for Messiah. There were people in Paul's day 
that were looking for Messiah. People in Timothy's day. And Lois and Eunice, at some point, I believe, were those Jews that had responded to what revelation God had given them. And maybe even when Paul and Barnabas came on the first missionary journey and the word of God was preached, maybe that's when they believed. And maybe Timothy, even at the same time, believed as his mother and his grandmother believed, but they'd invested in teaching him the scripture. May I challenge you moms and dads to be challenging your children with understanding the scripture. Family devotions are important. Have you ever thought about maybe memorizing a verse of scripture together? Maybe memorize a verse for the year or a verse a month and, re, and, and maybe review that verse throughout the year. If you, re, if you have a verse of the month for your family to memorize and then you review it by the end of the year, you can have 12 verses. You might want to pray about that and pick out some sort of a theme and then expand on that, meditate on that verse, explain that. That could be part of your family devotions. But Paul says that it was the scriptures that made you wise unto salvation. Paul's own testimony was the law was my schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. Let's be investing the word of God purposely in the lives of our children and of our grandchildren. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.15 that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5 when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. There was no putting on this unfeigned means it wasn't fake. It was the real deal. It was genuine. It was solid all the way through. It was not a half-hearted, hollow affront. You know, in the Old West, they had these buildings that looked like they were three or four stories, but it was just a facade. It was just one story, but they wanted to make their, their, you know, their dry goods store or whatever it was, uh, livery stable, whatever, look like it was bigger than what it really was. So they had these false fronts. Do you know what we need? Not just godly young men, although that's one of those basic elements, but we need godly Christians that are solid all the way through. Let me give you an illustration. I wasn't planning on using this illustration this morning. You may have heard this before, so if I've used it before, forgive me. I literally don't want to go off on a rabbit trail, but this is about rabbits. Um, <laughs> my mom and dad were health nuts when I was growing up. And so we, were not, we would have like total cereal with honey on it, Okay, we didn't get, the only time I got to have Apple Jacks, which was my very favorite, or Fruit Loops, it was my second favorite, was when we went to Grandma's house. All right. We had to take Shackley vitamins every day. But the time I was a kid, I could take a handful of vitamins and one gulp of water and boom, every day since then. So uh, I was really shocked one uh, Easter when my mom and dad uh, gave us a little Easter basket and it had a little bit of candy in it and it had an, a chocolate Easter bunny in it. And I was so excited. Now there's only one proper way to eat a chocolate rabbit start at the ears and work your way down i bit into those ears and it was solid chocolate it was awesome i couldn't believe mom and dad gave us like this huge rabbit of solid chocolate that's too good to be true and it was because when i took the bite into the head it was hollow i thought it's gonna be solid all the way down how disappointing and folks you know what None of us are perfect, okay, yet. We will be someday when we're in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For then we shall be like the Savior whom we shall see. But just because we are imperfect is no excuse for being hypocritical. For having an outward show and knowing how to dress and knowing how to speak and knowing how to sing the songs and knowing how to reference the scriptures and knowing how to answer questions in Sunday school. But in the privacy of your car and your own home or among your friends, what you talk about, what you do, what you think about, what your priorities are, is your Christian life hollow or are you solid chocolate all the way through? What we need are godly Christians who are solid all the way through. And one of the essential elements, if we're going to have a God-glorifying ministry, is godly young men who are seriously dedicated to following Christ. No matter what that means. Willing to do what God wants them to do. Go where God wants them to go. Endure what God may have them to endure. Serve however God wants them to serve. And let me tell you something from personal experience. It is the most incredibly satisfying, fulfilling an exciting thing you can ever do with your life is to give it to God and serve Him. And I'm telling you, there is something about the stability and the weight of being a solid Christian. Not a perfect Christian, but a solid Christian. 
one whose Christianity goes beyond Sunday morning or a couple of other services, and that's it through the week. But when your life is filled through and through with the Word of God, and the Word of God is impacting your moment-by-moment living, and you're a serious disciple of Jesus Christ, how God wants and will use you, and how delightful and how fulfilling and how satisfying and how secure it is to walk with your feet firmly planted on the ground because you have a weighty truth that anchors you. I might have gone on a little rabbit trail there. But Timothy also had a godly testimony among the believers in the area. Look, if you would, in verse 2, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. He wasn't going about trying to build a reputation. He was just a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, seriously dedicated, faithfully serving. But he had a godly testimony among the brethren. I call that spiritual maturity. We kind of hit on that already. So Timothy was seriously dedicated as a disciple. He was spiritually mature, and his testimony reflected that spiritual maturity. He was a young man. What does that look like, having a godly testimony as a young man? Well, Paul was admonishing Timothy as a new pastor in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Warren Wiersbe asked, if older, mature Christians do not adopt younger believers, who will fill in the ranks when God calls the veterans home? Let me stop and challenge you who uh, are mature in the faith. We can preach hard to these young men that they need to be seriously dedicated disciples and they need to be growing and having some spiritual maturity and some depth to their lives and be ready to do whatever God calls them to do. But are we coming alongside of them to call them to that, to encourage them to that? I'm not talking about coming up and saying, I think God's called you to the ministry. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about getting into their lives and asking them what God is teaching them and how can you pray for them. I'm talking about maybe inviting them to go with you when you have an opportunity to share uh, uh, the gospel with somebody or you're doing an evangelistic Bible study. You take one of these young men and you say, I just want you to be my prayer partner to come and to pray with me. And maybe there'll be another person your age that you can kind of connect with. And maybe you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with them or at least get to know them. And God will use that to begin to introduce them and open up their heart to the gospel. We, folks, we need to be impacting and connecting with our young people. It's not just the job of the church for our teenagers. It's not just the job of our, uh, of, our, of our youth pastor. It's not the job of the Christian school teacher and the parent. It's all of our responsibility. And that includes us as brothers and sisters at Christ in church, edifying and exhorting one another. When Warren Wisby said that, he said, when he said, if older mature Christians do not adopt younger believers, who will fill in the ranks when God calls the veterans home? I wrote down this observation. I wonder if the Apostle Paul came to Berean, who would he recruit for his ministry team? I mean, Paul goes to Lister and Derby. He goes after a certain young man, Timothy, to recruit him. For gospel ministry. You know, Timothy's background, Paul discerned, would fit him well for gospel ministry. He was suited for this mission. Remember, they were going to be visiting Jews and Gentiles. But also there's this aspect, too, that within this dispersion of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire, there were other people like Timothy whose one parent was a Gentile, one parent was a Jew. And because of Timothy's experience and background, he would understand their way of thinking. He would have understood what they went through. I think he would have had a certain compassion and specific burden for reaching them, for encouraging those who'd been saved, knowing what background challenges they might have had. Let me share just for a minute um, a little bit of Krista and I and our testimony. Uh, I was uh, raised in a Christian home. My dad planted and pastored a church before I was born. My first two years of life, my dad was pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church in Anderson, South Carolina. In 1970, my dad went into full-time evangelism, and I grew up traveling on the road with my mom and dad. I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. I grew up well-versed in the scriptures, well-taught, and I guarantee you, disciplined. And um, 
And so I have a, a background of understanding. I was sharing with one of our young men yesterday and having grown up in a Christian home and gotten saved at an early age, how when my mom was going through a sickness and we thought maybe she might die, and I was about 11, almost 12 years old, how that caused me to wonder, hey, when I was four years old, did I really truly put my faith in Jesus Christ or not? And how I got assurance of my salvation. And you know, God used that in my background to have, have an understanding in helping young people understand that, whether maybe it's an assurance of salvation or maybe they've only had a head knowledge and mistaken that for a personal relationship with <laughs> Jesus Christ. But helping someone work through that, having come out of that background has been very helpful. Some of the distinct challenges of accountability and other things from coming from a Christian home, uh, those are things with which I can associate and help. My wife comes from a completely different background. She has a wonderful godly grandpa and her grandpa and grandma raised from the time she was nine months old. Parents were divorced. She knows the struggles of being torn here and there and being used as a chess piece in other people's games. She knows what it's like with step and half brothers and sisters and all that kind of thing. Unsaved relatives. I have unsaved relatives too. Praise the Lord. Most of them have gotten saved. But you know, it's amazing how there were times, especially like at a Christian camp, when I'd be preaching in, in a, week of me, a week of camp, and after the invitation, and sometimes Krista would just, God would just draw her heart to some young lady, and she'd get engaged in that conversation, and that young lady would say, well, you're an evangelist wife. There, you, you probably can't understand where I'm coming from. And my wife would say, try me. And then my wife would just begin to share some of her background and how God was gracious to her and how God brought her along and how God called her and all the wonderful things that God did through her life for her to bring her to the place where even she, she got to be part of full-time ministry. And you know, you could see the hope begin to dawn in the eyes of some of these young ladies who came in kind of with this hopeless attitude. No one cares for me. How can God use me? My background is a hindrance to me. And yet how God's, and you know what? I've been able to learn so much through Krista's testimony in how to reach people that I, don't, I didn't have that same basis of understanding. And now that we've shared a number of years in marriage together and with each other's families, it's equipped her and me to be more fully uh, equipped to minister to more people and to be able to associate with them, have a compassionate burden for them, and to be able to relate to them and know how to minister to their needs. Folks, you know what? Whatever your background is, God didn't say, oops. Even when men make sinful choices, one of the things that we have seen and God should be pounding into our hearts in the book of Acts is that man's sinful choices and man's failures never thwart God's sovereign plan. And God has a plan for you and he's allowed you to have the experiences and the background and even the failures that you've had to be able to invest in brothers and sisters in Christ to exhort them, to encourage them, sometimes even to lovingly confront them and help them to be drawn back into fellowship with Christ, to be encouraged that God can restore and can use them or reach them with the gospel. Don't waste your life don't waste your background. Timothy was perfectly suited for the mission, not just that Paul had in the second missionary journey, but then Timothy goes on to be a pastor and to oversee other pastors and ministries. God greatly used Timothy's life. He was well suited to the task. You are well suited for the mission God has for you. For there are people that you will reach with the gospel or have opportunity to witness to that I never will. You may have an inroads and an understanding that I don't have or some other brother or sister in Christ doesn't have because of your unique story. Use that as leverage for the glory of God and his kingdom. Don't waste it. But not only the first element is godly young men, the second is gospel-driven priorities. Look at verse 3. Him, Timothy, would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And we say, time out! Wait a minute. What was all this in chapter 15 about these, these, these uh, Judaizers come up to the church at Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were, were ministering? They had come back from the first missionary journey. Many Gentiles had been saved. 
And now these Judaizers come up and say, you have to be circumcised and enter into the covenant of the ceremonial law of Moses. And then you are fit to receive eternal life. And Paul and Barnabas had no small contention with them. They stood up to that. They refuted that. The Antioch church says, let's get together a, a group to represent and let's go down to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders. And, and we need a definitive statement on the doctrine of the gospel. And they defended the purity of the gospel and said, listen, salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. Salvation is for the Jews outside the law. Salvation is for Jews who have been under the law. The freedom comes in Jesus Christ. John 8, 32, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Who is the truth? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We must not compromise the message of the gospel. At first glance, it appears that Paul's kind of caving in. Well, the Jews in those parts knew that Timothy was uh, uncircumcised. And here he has a, gen a Jewish mother uh, and a Gentile father. Is, is he kind of caving in? He's kind of backing off on this. Is he just appeasing or appealing uh, to men, wanting to, wanting to please men? No. No. Acts 15, 1 and 2, which I just referenced about Paul and Paul and Barnabas standing up to that and refuting that as false doctrine makes that clear but then in Galatians chapter 2 Paul relates with Titus Titus was another uh, one of the young men that Paul invested in and Titus was straight out Gentile he wasn't part Jew part Gentile he was straight up Gentile but neither Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised and that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privately to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We must not compromise the purity of the gospel. Paul was not here compromising the purity of the gospel, but we must not hinder the spread of the gospel ministry. What Paul is doing here with Timothy is deference, not compromise. Wearsby comments in explanation, it was done to remove a stumbling block from the Jews to whom Paul and Timothy would be ministering. Being the son of a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, Timothy did not have to be circumcised, but being a child of God, he wanted to do nothing that would cause the Jews to stumble. What was Paul's mode of operation in ministry? He would go to a city, and where would he go first? Synagogue. Who's in the synagogue? What if Timothy, who was Jew and Gentile, tries to go in there with Paul? They're having none of it. Okay? And they would not listen for a second to Paul because of Timothy. They wouldn't listen to Timothy either. Okay? Because they would say Timothy has no respect for his Jewish background. It would have been an obstacle. For all intents and purposes, he was a Jew, yet he would have been barred from any effective work among the Jews because he was known not to be circumcised. It was a matter of expediency and nothing more. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 21, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Under the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, Timothy, we don't want future ministry to be hindered. I don't want you to be limited because your Jewish brethren who are not yet saved will not listen to the gospel knowing that you are uncircumcised. They would be greatly offended. But if you are circumcised and it is known that you have submitted to that, not for salvation, but out of deference to them and out of respect for your Jewish roots and cultural traditions, and not for salvation or as some act of morality in order to earn favor with God, then Jewish unbelievers will listen to the gospel. You will have opportunity. We must not compromise the purity of the gospel message, but neither must we knowingly hinder the ministry of the gospel. Now, folks, let me 
hasten to add, because even Paul qualifies this in Galatians, we do not do anything contrary to the scriptures. We don't do anything that would in any way compromise our Christian testimony in order to win people to Christ. We don't use worldly methods. We don't use worldly means. We don't do ungodly things so that we can, unso- that we can associate with ungodly people and then thereby reach them with the gospel. No, folks. The gospel of Christ transforms us, and we proclaim that. And so we don't compromise the truth of the gospel, and we don't compromise the pursuit of being holy as God is holy. We're commanded that in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. In every facet of our living, we are to be walking in holiness because God is holy and he's commanded us to. So we never compromise holiness of living, but there are places in which we can show deference without compromise in order to not hinder the work of the gospel. And that's what Paul and Timothy are doing. And then three, the third element is growing Christians. Look, if you would, in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says in verse 4, And they went throughout the cities. As they went throughout the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep. Remember those decrees? Basically, just summing it up, do not engage in idol worship or in idolatrous festivals, though it is a part of your, your cultural background. It's infused into your culture. You are a Christian. Live like a Christian, not like a pagan. Do not observe those things. Stay away from those things. Do not compromise your Christian testimony. Okay? That was what was being proclaimed. Stay away from those things. Okay? But it was also being proclaimed, hey, you are saved without having to be circumcised and come under the covenant of Old Testament ceremonial law. That was also being proclaimed. Salvation is by faith through grace in Christ and that alone. And they ordained... Uh, that were ordained of the apostles and elders which read Jerusalem. That's that, that Jerusalem council message. Now look at verse 5. And so were the churches established in the faith. That word established literally translates strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Paul, Silas, and Timothy proclaimed the decision in the admonition of the Jerusalem council. So this stabilized or strengthened the church because wherever they went back, if they would have heard these little breezes of humor, uh, of rumors, hey, uh, maybe, maybe we do have to come under the covenant of the law. Maybe we do have to be circumcised to show God we're serious before we can be saved. Is there any question about that? The, the Paul and Silas and Timothy were going back and through saying, no, this is the gospel. Now, this is the admonition, too, that you are deserved for your testimony Uh, for the cause of Christ and the sake of the gospel, but this is the gospel in its pure form, and they went about decreeing that because that was also part of the decree from the Jerusalem council. So they were stabilized in the foundation of the gospel, faith by salvation by faith in Christ apart from ceremonial obligations of the Old Testament. They were unified by the message that Christians are to live and act like Christians, not pagans. And then the church was spiritually strengthened. Paul and Silas and Timothy are exhorting, they are teaching, they are preaching. I believe there's some accountability, especially with the church leadership, because Paul and Barnabas in every one of those cities on the way back through, heading back to Antioch, appointed pastors, spiritual leaders in every church. And so there's accountability, I believe, also that they were exercising and encouragement. Maybe some of those pastors said, hey, we've never faced this before. Um, what do we do? What, what is the scriptural and biblical mandate here? Um, maybe there was something else going on within the church that needed to be handled. And so uh, Paul was able to help those churches through those different things. But it was established and strengthened. The removal of the debate over the avenue of salvation for Gentiles cleared the way for all believers to share with confidence the gospel message to everyone. That's how the church was strengthened. Have you ever heard the phrase, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link? You ever hear that? I would submit to you that a church is only as strong as the spiritual life of each member of the body. But where does strength come from? Strength comes from growth and maturity. As we grow, we mature. As we mature, we become stronger in Christ. So the church grew numerically because they were growing spiritually. You see, we at Berean Baptist Church need to have a balance where the believers are edified, they are exhorted 
So edify means to build up. So to build up in the faith through biblical teaching so that you have a confidence in the truth of the scriptures and you understand the doctrines of the word of God. It is also edifying in that it is supporting, it is encouraging you. We, we live in the midst of a wicked world. We're to be in the world and not of the world and we are constantly fighting in spiritual warfare. What a wonderful blessing to come with God's people and worship and, and to be able to encourage one another and worship together and be refreshed through the ministry of the word together. And so we are to strengthen one another and we are to have that as an emphasis. We are to, the Great Commission is not just to see people saved, it is to see disciples strengthened and built. And that comes as we edify the body. And then the exhortation is strong challenge or encouragement. Sometimes this is publicly, like what I'm preaching from the pulpit, and the Holy Spirit confronts you with something in your life. You need that exhortation, you need that challenge to change something in your thinking or in your lifestyle according to the dictates of the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit makes that application. And that's something in which we are growing and we're learning. And by the way, we need to give each other a little bit of wiggle room to keep growing and learning because none of us are perfect. And none of us mature in the same areas at the same rate. We're all learning the same truth, but at different rates and in different areas. God's doing a transformative work in all of our lives. But our, each of our stories and each of our paths in that, though similar because it's according to the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, is unique as we ourselves are individually unique people. All right? And then the church grew numerically because they grew spiritually. <coughs> we preach the gospel. We want to see souls saved. But we want to build disciples. You see, when I was an evangelist for a few years, um, when we would travel... I had three main goals as an evangelist. The first one was to encourage the pastor. If the pastor is encouraged, and if he has a fresh vision and mission purpose, that he's gonna be able to lead the church in that. If he is encouraged, if he's challenged, and God's doing a work in his life, that's gonna translate into the lives of the church. The second was to see God work revival in the hearts of believers. Revival is not something that an unsafe person can experience. Revival is something only a Christian can experience. But when God's people are revived, when apathy is overcome, when sin habits are broken by the power of the grace of God, when, when laziness and apathy are overwhelmed with a passionate, renewed love and gratitude for our Savior and a renewed spiritual and eternal vision and purpose for our life and seeing others through the lens of God's word and God's love, we are transformed and then as we are strengthened as the church and equipped then we will be going out and evangelizing the church grew numerically because first they were growing spiritually they were being strengthened because they were strengthened then they were going out let me say this spiritually mature christians strong believers will be witnessing the gospel say but i'm not witnessing the gospel then maybe there's some spiritual maturing that needs to happen. Or maybe, like Jesus said to one of the churches, you've left your first love. Because when you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and you experience that daily fellowship of walking with Him, and if you're walking controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, how can you not be burdened with a passion to share the gospel with somebody else, to share with them the goodness of your God and, and what your relationship with Him is like and how it's affected and changed your life and how it's impacted your eternity and how the same truth is available to them. And the same miraculous power of God's grace is for them. Friend, this morning, though this is not primarily a gospel message, let me stop and say this. The Bible says, for when we were without strength, that word without strength from the Greek means absolutely no strength. When we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, you and I have no power to earn merit with God to somehow work through things and get God's forgiveness for our sin through a series of good works or religious activities. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul proclaimed in the book of Titus, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done 
but according to his mercy, he saved us. I would ask you, friend, do you know you have eternal life? 1 John 5.13 declares, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You say, what's it mean to believe on the name of the Son of God? Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Confess means to say the same. It means you say the same as God, what he says about his Son. Jesus Christ is the Savior and the only way to eternal life. He is the only perfect sacrifice that could be made for sin. And he completed that work on the cross. He died, was buried, and he rose again. For the word of God, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration. The Greek words that make up the word inspiration literally translate God breathed. The word of God was spoken out by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the prophets. We have it now in written form. This is God's eternal, divine, unchanging truth. And the truth that is proclaimed is that if you will say the same thing that God in his word says about you, that you're a sinner and cannot earn eternal life through good works or religious activity, if you will say the same thing about Jesus that God says that he is God the Son, that he is the only way of eternal life, that his work on the cross was for you personally because he loves you and sufficient to cleanse you from sin and give you eternal life. If you will believe as God declares through his word that Jesus conquered death as God and rose again and is the living son of God, and if you will then call upon him, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, then God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It is not getting merely an an exercise in academic acknowledgement. It is not saying, yes, I agree with these elementary Bible truths that these facts actually happened and are true. That doesn't make you saved. Salvation is a personal trust in Jesus Christ. It is calling on, say, how then do I call on Christ that way? Because Romans 10, 13 declares that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do we talk to God? We talk to God through prayer. And it's not through saying some sort of prayer like it's a magical incantation and you have to get the incantation just right. It is a confession. It's a prayer something like this that you mean sincerely from your soul. God, I am a sinner and I deserve hell forever. But I know you love me and you died, Jesus, to cleanse me from my sin. You paid the price in full for me. You took the punishment that I deserved. You died and being God, you conquered death and rose again on the third day. I believe you to be the living son of God. I'm praying to you as the living son of God. And I'm asking and trusting you, please forgive me of all my sin and give me eternal life. And you do that by faith. You're saved eternally. You have eternal life. It was merely a formality because your mommy and daddy, you thought wanted you to do that and you were just pleasing him or because the rest of your family were Christians. So you're just going to kind of go through that as a ritual. That's not salvation. Salvation's personal faith in Christ. And I invite you to trust him. And those of us who have, we need to be growing. Peter closes his second epistle, 2 Peter 3.18, by saying, but be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do we grow in strength and immaturity? Well, how do you grow physically? How do you get stronger physically? Proper diet, proper rest, and proper exercise. So let's see what the word of God has to say about that spiritually. Job 23, 12, Job says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The word of God. By the way, come back tonight at 530. I'm going to be preaching a message on fasting. I'm going to bring that back in a little bit. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Rest, Psalm 37, 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Jesus said, come unto me all day that weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then exercise, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little. Still profits, by the way. So don't use that as an excuse not to be a good steward of your physical body and not exercise. It only profits little, it still profits. But godliness is profitable unto all things. It's much greater. Sometimes people overemphasize trying to stay in physical shape thinking somehow they're going to extend their life. 
You know, my dad for years has been a runner and, and has exercised. And people talk to him about that and he'll say, look, I only have one life to serve God. I'm not expecting to ex extend my life any further. I have a death date like I have a birth date. But I want to be as effectual for the Lord as I can and be as faithful as steward with this one life. And that means having a body and a mind that are as sound as possible in order to serve the long, the Lord for as much as I can, for as long as I can. And I believe that that is right stewardship. But some people pay too much attention to taking care of their bodies to the neglect of their spiritual welfare. You can spend two hours working out in a gym but not spend 10 minutes in God's word every day. There's something wrong with that. That's out of balance. Maybe I just went to meddling from preaching. I don't know. But that's how you grow spiritually. You rest in the Lord through prayer, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Resting in the promises of the word of God, hungry to be in the word, asking God by his Holy Spirit to open up your understanding and to transform you through the truth of his word and to teach you and to guide you. Resting in him through prayer and then exercising yourself unto God and say, how do I exercise myself unto godliness? Let me ask you a question and I want a verbal response. If I'm going to go out tomorrow, say, and I'm going to run three miles. I'm just picking a number. I'm going to run three miles, okay? How do I run three miles? One step at a time. How do I exercise myself on the godliness one decision at a time? It means waking up when the alarm clock goes off so I can read my Bible instead of sleeping in an extra 15 minutes. I just made a choice to exercise myself to godliness. When I'm tempted to be impatient with somebody and the Spirit of God begins to warn me, I say, God, I need your grace right now. Help me to respond with grace and kindness when I want to be impatient. God, control me by your Holy Spirit, and I choose to respond in a patient, loving way. I just exercise myself to godliness. I'm tempted to lie because I might get in trouble with the boss or with my wife and not be completely honest and transparent. And yet I choose to speak the truth in love, to provide things honest in the sight of all men when that choice is made. And I've just exercised myself to godliness. You ever going to witness to somebody and share the gospel with them? You know the baby step that you can take to become a gospel witness for Jesus Christ? Go back to that track rack, track rack back there and grab some of those Christmas postcard gospel tracks and just hand out a couple this week and take a baby step. And pretty soon you can be running a spiritual marathon as a witness for Jesus Christ. And then you'll start maybe sharing your testimony. Or you'll ask a person about what they're going through and you'll listen with compassion and you'll pray for them. And as you pray for their needs, you also pray for their soul. Exercise yourself rather unto godliness. The church grew numerically because believers grew strong spiritually. God must build his church. He uses faithful believers to evangelize unbelievers and edify the saints. That's your job. That's my job, but it's not just my job. That's your job too, if you're a born-again believer. One author wrote, their work was successful, successful because their first interest was in strengthening the churches. Strong churches will naturally increase in number without relying on man-centered and manipulative methods. And then I wrote this down as a, as a thought in addition to that. Here's my thought. Numerical growth is not the end goal. But we want to evangelize and disciple as many people as possible. Unless believers of the church grow spiritually, the church will most likely not grow numerically. We must be faithful and trust that God will build his church. We need some godly young men. We need some godly older men. We need some godly young women and godly older women. Paul writes to Titus about that. We need Christians who are committed, seriously committed disciples, who have a godly testimony that evidences some spiritual maturity, that are willing to be gospel-centered in their focus willing for the sake of expediency to go through difficulty, to go through inconveniences, yea, sacrifice, not to please men, but to please God so that we do not hinder the spread of the gospel while at the same time not compromising the purity of the gospel message or our Christian testimony. 
And then we, together, we need to strengthen each other. We need a spiritually strong church, but a spiritually strong church is made up of spiritually strong Christians. And I can't read your Bible for you, and I can't pray for you, and I can't rest in the Lord for you. I can teach you God's word. I can pray for you. I can counsel with you. I can serve you. I can get you resources. I I can support you. But I cannot grow you. You have to choose to let God grow you. But you've got to have proper rest, proper exercise, and proper nutrition, spiritually speaking. And you know what? Do I want God to grow this church numerically? Sure I do. Because I want to see as many people saved in this community as we can reach and discipled as we can. But the church must be strengthened if we're going to reach our community. Both must be happening at the same time. It's not really two steps, but I do see a balance in priorities. And if we're not strengthening the church and we skip that just to go to try to spread the gospel first, we're becoming imbalanced. We need to keep it in balance. But that balance also has to be in each of us as individual believers. That the work of God may be glorified, his kingdom may be built for his own glory. Let's bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord this morning. Appreciate this morning your patient attendance to the word of God. I trust now in this invitation time that in your heart you will respond. And though we're not going to have an invitation where you would go to the back and meet one of the pastors and go out for counseling, if you are here today in our in-person service and you're not so sure where your soul would spend eternity, please come and see me back at the Connection Point. Or maybe there's somebody around you that you know is a believer who could take the Word of God and show you the way of salvation. Talk to them. They'd be delighted to help you. It doesn't have to be me. There's nothing special about me. I would just love that privilege if, if you would like You've heard the message. I'm not going to reiterate it in the invitation. You let the Holy Spirit deal with you. And in the quietness, while our pianist now plays, now's the time for you to respond. But let me encourage you then to share with somebody the decision that you made before the Lord right now and hold yourself accountable to the Lord and to somebody else to follow through. That we may see God glorified through our lives. 